So I want to say hello again. This has been such a privilege to be with you through this month of July. We've had some uh, real high points as we commissioned servants to go out and bless the world in God's name, especially in this area of Thorold. We uh, celebrated a baptism last week and reminded ourselves of God's grace that extends to us and our children and, and that we can be grace to the world. And we've been looking at the book of James. And I want to encourage you, if you've been with us over the month of July, and even if you haven't, to go back and look through the book, because I've been painting with pretty broad strokes, and there is a lot of depth and, and good wisdom in the book of James. So I commend you to continue thinking about that book and, and seeing how um, it can be used as a mirror for your own soul as you look to see how is God calling you to be more and more like Jesus. Uh, before we read the last chapter, chapter 5, or a portion thereof, I want to think about a couple of things, and I want to think about um, living in a throwaway culture. And some of you know that Tom and I just moved into our, our new house this week, and I'm just going to be really honest with you, we have too much stuff. I thought we had gotten rid of a lot of stuff when we moved out of our old house, and now that we're in the new house, we realized, oh, we still have too much stuff. And yet, we realize we also live in kind of a throwaway culture. You know, you, you buy a couch that you don't like after five years, and what do we typically do? We either put it on Kijiji, or, or we, we give it to a neighbor, or whatever. We don't tend to think about things as having lasting craftsmanship and lasting stay in our lives. Now, I'm in an in-between place in my life right now. We'll just let that go. And part of the in-between stage of my life right now is that I am the keeper of the memories of my family. So I have my mother's antique furniture. I have all of the crafts and, and artwork that my grandpa did in his life. And I have my kids' stuff that they want to keep as memories. We have too much stuff. We live in a throwaway culture. Now, here's the question I have for you. In a throwaway culture, I think that the way we use our words mimics our throwaway culture. We use words all the time without even thinking about them. For instance, in a world that truth is subjective, I have my truth, you have your truth, that seems to be the culture around us, we can throw out a story and just by having it out there it almost seems to have a life of its own, whether or not it's true in reality. Think about somebody who uh, you know does, isn't a Christ follower, probably isn't even really aware of God in their lives, but all the time says, oh my God, oh my God. How about someone in the South? This is what we do. I, I used to live in Ohio, and in the South, this is how we can talk about other people and still be okay about it. We'll say, oh, you remember Leslie? God bless her. She really has a problem. And by sticking God bless her in, then we can start critiquing and judging because we have kind of given ourselves a, a, a way forward because we're really doing it out of concern, all of these things that we're saying about her. How about people who are trying to convince you to something or do something or think about their truth? They'll say, swear to God, my hand to God. We invoke God all the time, and I think most of the people that do it aren't even thinking about God at all. It's just they're throwaway words. 
How about someone who yells out, I hate you? We know that many of those words have passed our lips, and we didn't really mean them, but we were just so angry, and that was the only way we could capture the level of that anger. Here are some other throwaway words, unfortunately, and, and hopefully this isn't reflective of many of us, but I know what happens. I'll pray for you. And what that means is I don't really have time to commit to that now, but in the future, and how often haven't we walked away and, oh, I had promised to pray for somebody. What was that about? Here's one that uh, really got me. About 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to teach grade two for a year. And that was right around the time in the United States where we had a lot of school shootings. And so as staff people, we were told to take kids' words very seriously. So if a kid on the playground said something like, I'm going to kill you, we had to follow up on that. Back in my day, those words would have been throwaway words, and you would have just said that was a kid who didn't know how to self-regulate and use their words wisely. But nowadays, when we know that people have access to guns and knives, we have to take those words seriously. And so I heard that on the playground from one of my grade twos. And I had to pull the little kid in, and I had to say, you know what? I need to understand what you meant. Because if you really mean I'm going to kill you, then we have to talk about some things. If you meant I'm very angry at you or it makes me mad when you tease me, then we can talk about some other things here. But I had to teach my grade twos to say what they mean and to mean what they say because there are certain throwaway words that we can't throw away anymore. And then we think about the kind of inauthentic community that surrounds us where words don't always have the meaning we think they do. People say things that they don't mean on Facebook and in Twitter, and there's no, yeah, no consequences to it. So we're never quite sure if people are joking, if they're being facetious, or if they're talking out of a true place in their heart. And then what about this, the political word spin? People mean things that they don't say. Words matter, James tells us again and again in this book. And I want you to think about those things as we think about not only how does it break down our community, but here's what I thought of this week as I was spending time in the book of James. How does the way we look at our words impact the way we pray, the things we ask for, the way we approach God's throne in prayer? Are we able to take the world around us and shove it away enough to actually realize that when we pray, our words have power. Think about that as we look at James 5. I am starting at verse 7, in case some of you have your Bibles with you. James 5. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient. Stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience... In the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. 
You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about there. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is God's word. All throughout the book of James, we've seen him connect or try to remind us that the, there's a connection between what God is doing inside us and the fruit that that bears. That there needs to be a wholeness and integrity about from what we believe and how we believe God is working in us and how we act on those beliefs, how we speak out of that truth. He says you can't live a divided life, but he also said you can't judge from the outside. We do not know what God is doing on the inside of each one of us. It's not our place to judge. That's God's job to judge. And so he says, have a reality check. How do your actions and your words, as you look into the mirror of Scripture, as you look into the mirror of Christ to see what you should reflect, how do those add up? Is there a disjunct there? And so the first thing James says in this part of the chapter is he says, be patient with each other. Persevere with each other. It is still a broken world. We are still broken people. There will be actions that don't seem to match with what we believe because God is still working on us. Because like a farmer who sows the seeds, it takes a while for seeds to grow. It takes a while for what's going on the inside to reveal itself on the outside. We can't always see what those seeds will produce. So we have to be patient, patient with God and patient with each other. We can't expect each other to change, to, to kind of fit our, our will in our way. We have to trust that God is working in each one of us, and it's not our job to judge. James remind us that the judge, God himself, is right there. He'll do that work. And I think we're also reminded in this farmer's story that seeds have to die before they can bring forth life. And that a lot of what goes on in the inside of each one of us is a dying to ourselves. I might be a very naturally critical person, but I have to die to myself in that critique every day. I might naturally be a person that is um, judgmental. I have to die to myself every day so they don't act on that. 
it takes a while for that, those seeds to, to die and grow into the fruit that we want to bear. And we have to trust that God will be the one who grows that fruit. And what's so interesting is that James goes right from that picture of the farmer waiting to see the fruit, being patient with each other. And then he says, don't grumble about each other. Don't use your words to talk about each other, to grumble about the way that we've disappointed each other. How we thought somebody was going to come through on something and they didn't. How we had better expectations of that person because they were a Christ follower. He said, not only does that break up authentic community, not only does that tear down the way that we work with each other and that we can be brothers and sisters to each other, but we turn into kind of a, a, a judgmental and, and a whiny bunch when we're so busy looking at what's going on with others and we don't pay attention to how God is growing his spirit and the fruit of the spirit within each one of us. So he says, stop grumbling. Don't use words to tear each other down or to set each other up to fall down. And then he moves from there and he says, don't swear. Now I know when I was growing up, one of the ways that we Christian school kids and kids in my youth group thought we could set ourselves apart is we never said, oh my God. And we could be very offended when we heard that. And we could be very self-righteous when we heard people say those things. That was kind of our, our testimony. I'm so embarrassed of it now. But that was our testimony of faith. We would call people out if they used the Lord's name in vain. Not only was that not particularly uh, attractive and appealing, it certainly didn't allow for good conversation about what it meant to follow Jesus. But I do think James is on to something here. I think he wants to remind us that when we add God's name to emphasize, we're really acknowledging the fact that he is the higher power. He is the king of the universe. His name means something. And so we shouldn't willy-nilly call it into practice when we're trying to prove a point. When we say things like, I swear to God, or my hand to God, we're trying to say, look, God knows I'm right, and so you better know that I'm right. And James says, don't do that. Don't do that to each other. Don't pretend that somehow God is going to be on your side in a conflict and not on the other person's side. That only God hears your truth or your side of the story and not the other person. He says, let the fruit that comes out of your heart be one that is a fruit of truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your words be powerful enough to tell the truth that people could in fact say yes when Leslie says something, when Paul says something, when Steve says something, we can trust it because that's how he lives out his faith or she lives out her faith. Don't pull God's name into it as if somehow that's an extra stamp of approval on your life. Because when we do that, we actually do create inauthentic community because we say somehow God is siding with me and not you when we're judging and we're grumbling against each other. So he says, don't do it. It's not helpful. But he's also reminding us that God's name is not something to be taken lightly, not something to be batted around as if it doesn't mean anything. God hears us when we call his name. God is listening. God is engaged. And so when his name is spoken, he responds. Saying his name is a powerful thing. So don't use it willy-nilly. I remember uh, when I was doing student teaching, 
My maiden name is Suwin, S-U-W-Y-N. It was a name nobody could ever pronounce, nobody could ever remember. And my first year student teaching, I could hear a bunch of kids saying, Miss Susan, Miss Susan. And I was always so mad at Miss Susan because Miss Susan never responded to her children when she was out on the playground or in the hall. It didn't occur to me that I was Miss Susan and nobody could remember my name. We know that when we hear our names, we respond. When I hear mom in just a certain tone, even the word mom, I know it's my girls and they need me. When I hear Leslie, I perk up and I pay attention. Multiply that by a million. We don't just invoke or call out the name of God without realizing he's listening and he's waiting to hear what we have to say. So James says, don't throw it into your conversations if you're not talking about him or to him because he's engaged in this conversation too. So that's why he says, don't curse. Calling out God's name is calling on the powerful one. And we remember from the first time that we talked about the book of James that this book is written by a Jewish Christian to Jewish Christians. And they had a very high reverence for the name God. Even Jews today won't spell out the name God. They'll do G-D. That's how much reverence they have for it. And so when Jesus ushered us into this more intimate Abba Father kind of relationship, James wants to say, just because we have familiarity, just because we're called sons and daughters of the Most High, just because we can go directly to him, the curtain has been split and we don't have to go through a priest to talk to him, doesn't mean he's just our good buddy in the sky. God is the king of the universe. Be aware of the power of his name, the majesty of his name the worth of his name, and don't use it as a careless throwaway phrase. And this really reminds us of the direct link to prayer and how if we get into the habit or if we get sucked into culture where there's throwaway words and throwaway phrases, we undermine our prayer lives. I really believe this. And so James says to us, When you say, dear Heavenly Father, when you say, dear God, when you say, dear King of the universe, remember who it is you're praying to. It really is the Creator God. It really is. He is the Father who loves you. He really is the one who who spoke a word and called this all into being. Remember who you're praying to. And then all of a sudden, all these stories from Jesus start coming back to us. That father's not a trickster. If you ask him for something, like any good father and mother, any good parent, he's going to try to provide what you need. He's not going to trick you into something. Remember the story where who, if, who asks the father for bread and the father gives stones? That's not how God works. He knows us intimately. He knows what we need. So remember to whom it is you are praying. It is the king of the universe, the one who can and will provide, who has provided for you. So keep that in mind when you start your prayers. And then James says, be careful what you pray for. Do you remember that saying anywhere? I don't know. Has anybody ever said that to you? Give me a a look of life out there. (laughs) Okay, good. You know, I can remember saying, oh, I just need to pray for patience. 
And I remember my mom saying to me, be careful what you pray for. Because often, we don't just get that infusion of patience, do we? No, we're put in a situation where we have to exercise patience, where we have to reflect on patience, where we have to actually experience what patience is all about. Again, James is saying, not be careful what you pray for because it's going to be hard work, but your words matter. The things you ask for, you are asking from the one who can actually give them to you and put you in situations where you can grow in the things you're asking for. Prayer is powerful. God listens and God answers. And so if you remember, as we talked through this book, it's all about being a wise person, a wise person who lives fully in God's face, who understands scripture, who, who lives into and out of the word, so that when we pray, we understand that we're not praying just for me and for my little space in the world, but we're praying into God's will and way, understanding the bigger picture of where we try to fit into that kingdom world, that kingdom language, that kingdom prayer. And so a wise person is a humble person. So before I ask anything, and James says before you ask anything, not only know who it is you're asking, but know that you don't know all the time what you need to ask. We are limited in our understanding. We are limited in understanding what is best for us and best for other people. And so I think one of the things that I've learned the most over the last 10 or so years when I say I'm going to pray for you is I don't know what I'm going to pray about, but I know who I'm praying to about you. I don't know what's best for you. I often don't know what's best for me. So I pray that wisdom will come to you. I pray that, that your eyes will be open to people who know how to walk alongside us in different con uh, situations. I pray that, that in the word, answers will come forward so we know how to pray our way forward. It's very easy to judge someone and say, well, I really think you need this. But a wise person knows that they are not God and they are not in control. And if you think it's, we think it's easy to pray for someone else, I think sometimes we know, we think we know exactly what we need and we'll just need to ask God and we'll, and that will be the best thing for us. And I've learned over, I'm going to be 56 soon, over these many years, is I often think I know what I know and what I need, but I am off base. I don't know. So I have to come with a humble heart and say, God, I don't even have the words Open my eyes to your will in my life. Open my eyes to your way, to the way of peace, to the way of hope, to the way of life, the way of grace. And then James says to us, and then believe that prayer matters. That it isn't some exercise that we do to open a meal or to, to end our day, but believe that the words that you pray have just as much power as the words that God spoke into life. When we say something to God, he listens and he acts on, on those prayers. Think of, of, of Abraham who prayed for Lot to save Lot. Think of, of, of say, trying to save an entire city. Think of, of saving Nineveh. God, if there are people there, save that town. Prayers matter. We hear that in the prayers of Elijah. Prayer has power. Stop the rain, God. And it wasn't because of 
Elijah's idea that this was the best way to go. He knew that he was a spokesperson for God. And then he prays rain to come again after three and a half years. It wasn't because Elijah was some particularly great prayer or there was something. He was a mere mortal, James says. But prayer and knowing to whom we pray, prayer is powerful. So James says, if you're a believer, if you're walking in Christ's ways, pray. If you're in trouble, pray. God will answer your prayers. It may not be the way that you think he will answer them. That's where humility comes in. But pray. And if you are overwhelmed with thanksgiving and praise, let God know. Let him know that you understand that he holds this whole world in his hands and that we appreciate and love and enjoy his care. If you're dealing with sickness, and the ultimate sickness, James says, is sin in our lives, pray. Gather the community, an authentic community where we can bear our souls to each other, to pray over each other, to hold each other accountable. Ask for forgiveness. That is a powerful prayer. If you struggle with shame, ask for God to get rid of shame. That is a powerful prayer. He can and he will do it. And all around this, we're reminded in this prayer to pray that prayer of someone who is humble, who says, God, I don't know exactly what I need, but I know you do. I don't exactly know what the future holds, but I know you hold the future. And I trust that you will do what you need to, meet, what you need to do to create in me wholeness and healing. Now, I, I say this with all humility myself because I know that each one of us probably dance between two poles of that believer's prayer that God can and will do everything and anything and that prayer of where we kind of hedge our bets, but not my will, your will. I'm not sure, God, what, you, what I need. And so I'll pray that maybe you do something for me and I kind of take the power out of my prayer. I remember when I was 17 years old running into another young Christian and we were having a conversation and he was convinced, he wore glasses like I did, and he was convinced that God was going to bring his sight back to 2020. It wasn't that he was blind and that he couldn't function. He just really felt that God wanted him to have 2020 vision. And I remember thinking, huh, I must not have faith. I must not have grown and matured enough in my faith because to me that doesn't seem like something that God would care so much about. He gave us glasses and contact lenses and doctors that can help us to function. So it didn't resonate with me until about four years later, I was on a ski trip. And if I've told this story, please forgive me, but it's a good illustration. I was on a ski trip in a cabin in the mountains that had no running water. So I was out of my routine for going to bed and I can't even remember if I remembered to brush my teeth because you had to do that in, a, in one room with non-running water and you had to go to an outhouse for other things. And I fell asleep because we had had a long day of skiing. And the next morning I woke up, I opened my eyes and I could see clearly. I could see crystal clear after years of wearing glasses and contact lenses. It wasn't about two minutes and I thought I'd been healed. I believe that God can do that healing. I thought I'd been healed. But if any of you who wear contact lenses and have ever fallen asleep with your contact lenses on, I was just ready to run downstairs to tell my testimony about how God had healed my sight. I wasn't sure why. When all of a sudden I had incredible pain 
in my eyes because I'd fallen asleep with my hard lenses in my eyes and now the lenses were glued to my corneas and I, the crystal clear sight was starting to go away because I, could, I was tearing up so much because I couldn't see. The point of this story isn't that I should have gotten a better bedtime routine. The point is, is that we want God. We want to believe in miracles. And even though it didn't occur to me that I would need to have that miracle, I was open to that miracle. And that's the dance we play, isn't it? That's that, that, the, the struggle that we have to pray boldly, and yet, is this really what God wants for me? To pray in a way that we know that miracles happen. We've, some of us have seen miracles. And yet, is that the right thing to pray for? On a more serious note, some of you know that I grew up with a sick mother. And when we were very young, people told us, the reason your mom's not getting better is that you girls don't have enough faith. You're not praying enough. Those were words that were hurtful and not particularly helpful and kind of come out of that judging end that James says, don't grumble against each other. Don't assume that those four girls aren't praying for their mom and that they don't believe that a miracle can happen. But it wasn't until my mom died that I knew a miracle had happened. On her deathbed, she had a Christian physician who talked to her, and she hadn't spoken for five years, hadn't said a word. Kathleen, are you ready to meet your Lord and Savior? And she spoke. She said, yes. I'm ready to see Jesus. That was our miracle. And we didn't even get to see it. We knew that someone who had been so bitter and upset about her disease, God had been working inside. There was patience and perseverance, even though we weren't always aware of it. And the testimony was that God had healed her. God had healed her spirit, and she was ready to go home to be with him. Those prayers were answered. They just weren't answered in the timing that we wanted or the way we wanted, but they were answered. I say that because sometimes when we pray, we won't get to see what the outcome of those prayers will be. Sometimes we don't realize that the limp that we've been given is actually what God is using to draw other people to him. And so a humble heart that prays that God will do the right thing in the right timing knows that we won't always understand what that timing and the right, what the right thing is. So James encourages us to pray the prayer of a wise person, a person that's deeply embedded in Scripture, a person that understands that God, the creator of the universe, knows better than any of us what we need, when we need it, and how we can receive it. It's the exact opposite of kind of that name it and claim it understanding of prayer that says, you know, that mountain can be moved. I want that mountain moved just because I want it moved. No, it says, humbly, God, if there is something in the way in my life, I pray that you will take it away. But I also pray, God, that you will help me climb over that mountain if that is the way I will learn to be more of a humble follower of you. I encourage you to read James again. I encourage you to lean into what it means to be a wise person. A wise person says that God speaks into every part of our lives, that his word is powerful, 
and that through his word we can become a powerful, gracious community to each other and to the world. I pray that we will be the kind of people that look in the mirror first and spend a lot less time judging others and just waiting and persevering as God works on each one of us to be the people that he has called us to be. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word does not return void and empty. We thank you that we are being created to be more and more like Jesus every day, even if we can't always see the evidence. Help us to be faithful prayers for each other. Help us to be honest and open with you so that we can be honest and authentic with each other. May this community, this village church, be known as one where there is safety in being a part of that growing process, where together we support each other as we become to more and more like Jesus. Help us to be a blessing not only to each other, but to your world. We pray this name in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.